So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So he said to them, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that. He had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Good morning. It's a real blessing that Matt, Pastor Mike, travel. We're going to have three different worship leaders and four different weeks. And love that when I'm gone. There are others equipped to preach and bring the word of God to you. It's a real gift that God has given to all of us. In this passage, as John makes clear in the opening words, we have another public teaching of Jesus during the Feast of Tabernacles. Matt, if you were in Berea this morning, helped us to see that all of seven, seven through eight is the same setting. Hopefully, as we've made our way through the gospel, you remember the main point. And to help you remember the main point, it's been up on the screen for the months we've been in the gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and through belief in Jesus have life. That's the main point. In other words, John writes what he wrote and recorded what he recorded under the inspiration of the Spirit so that all who come across this would know that Jesus is the Christ and believe in him as as the Christ. And so I I hope within all of that, you've also noticed that a central component of the Christness of Jesus is his teaching. A, A big part of what he did as the Christ was instruct. That is, Jesus Corrected in his teaching, he corrected sometimes centuries and even thousands of years, millennia, old lies and misconceptions. He revealed mysteries that had been kept hidden for ages and generations, and he offered his hearers the chance to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. But above all, though, in his teaching as the Christ, Jesus offered the fullest revelation yet of God, and therein invited all through him into repentance and worship and restored fellowship with God that had been lost since the garden. As Jesus taught these things, people wondered. That's what we see over and over in John's gospel. People wondered. They wondered, who is this man? Which they say explicitly in this passage. They wondered, what do we what do we do with him, with the things he says and does? They wondered what to make of his unique authority and insight. Nobody teaches like this guy He doesn't sound like our scribes and the ones we're accustomed to hearing from. There's power in what he says. What do we do with that? They wondered how to respond to his claims about himself, his rebukes of them, and his commands to them. 
in the name of his father. And they wondered what to do with all of that in light of the fact that the religious leaders who had the power to put them out the church, out of the temple, out of the synagogues, had the power to make their lives miserable, to lose their livelihood, and even take their lives. They wondered what to do with all of that in light of the fact that these religious leaders were growing in their anger, condemnation of Jesus. Well, as Jesus' own words make clear, the outcome of those wonderings Grace, get this, get this, get this. The outcomes of those wonderings. When you are confronted with the teaching of Jesus, which you are because you're here this morning, and if you've been here for a while, you've been confronted with it over time, and if you grew up in a home that the gospel was taught and the Bible was read, you've been confronted with this for who knows how long. But the outcome of the wondering, what do we do with this guy? What do we do with these teachings? What about this saying and that saying and this charge on our lives? It's of no small consequence what you do with that, what we do with that, what those in this passage did with that. To believe Jesus, that is to believe in him, as we'll see here in these words, means life. But to disbelieve or reject Jesus is to die in sin. In this passage, in a new way, some familiar ways, but in some new ways, Jesus put himself, that is, his glory, and the glory of the Father on display for all to receive. And so this decision was again put before his hearers. Believe in Jesus and be reconciled to God or reject Jesus and remain dead in trespasses and sins. And that's what's before you and me this morning as well. At its heart, this is a passage on the various glories of Jesus and the various responses of those who witnessed it. We see Jesus' glory in his certain knowledge of the future, both his own and his, that of his hearers. We see it in his heavenly origin, his heavenly destination, his heavenly obedience, and his heavenly affections. We see it in his offer of salvation through his sacrificial death of being lifted up. His, we see it in his consistent and entirely divine teaching, his divine nature, which he reveals increasingly in this passage, and his perfect pleasure in the Father, and the Father's perfect pleasure in him. And we see in the various responses of the crowds, we see their confusion of many and belief of some. Well, the main takeaway for you and for me this morning is to continue to pursue the glory of Jesus as he has revealed it to us, as the rest of the Bible reveals it to us, in faith, and to declare that, the glory of Jesus, and the reconciliation that can be ours through faith in Jesus to the whole world, that the world might not die in sin. So let me say something really quickly. It's a shorter manuscript, so I got a little bonus time here. I think I've used this illustration before, but I want to use it again. When you hear truth, when I hear truth, when we come to the word of God and are confronted with truth, there is meant to be, and we're meant to understand it, and then there's meant to be like this bungee cord. There's a little bit of stretch. There's meant to be this bungee cord where new truth pulls our obedience. The obedience follows. There's immediate tension when you hear something of Jesus, whether it's new or old, but when you're confronted with who he is and what he calls us to, there's meant to be this bungee, tight bungee cord-like 
like, like tension that pulls you to live differently, to feel differently, to act differently, to speak differently. Okay. In churches that overemphasize the action, where you're, you're, you're just doing all the time, the, the tension can get too great and the bungee cord snaps so that you're acting based on your own insight, your own thought of what Jesus would want from you, your own sense of what his, what he, should have commanded you to. And so your obedience is detached from your understanding. But in churches like ours, the, we, we, we care a lot about sound doctrine and good teaching. Well, the opposite problem can happen where you learn more and more and more and the bungee cord gets too tight and it snaps so that there's no compulsion then to obey. You think of learning new things as the goal in and of itself or, or by learning something new, I am therefore pleasing to God, but our learning is meant to transform us. We're meant to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, just not have new thoughts and, and clearer ideas in our head. So that's, that's my burden for us. As Jesus puts his glory on display for us, we're meant to feel this tension to live differently in light of it. So let me, let me pray that that would be the case. A lot of words for some, something really very simple. Jesus, as you reveal yourself to us, we're meant to live entirely in light of that. And it's just so easy sometimes to not feel the burden to know you more or in knowing you more to act differently in light of that or to make our actions in your name tied directly to your commands. It's just so easy to get all that wonky like that in all those different ways. And I pray that there would be less wonkiness this morning. I think that's a legit way to pray. I pray that is that as we see Jesus, as he teaches us, as he reveals more of himself to us in this passage, and we see the different responses, <clears throat> the different responses of those who heard him, I pray that in front of us immediately would be our own response. We would learn from theirs, rightly and wrongly, what to do and what not to do, but, but that what we would learn is that we too, having been confronted with the written word of Jesus would know that we're every bit as responsible to respond to it in faith as those who received the spoken word of Jesus in this passage. God, let the tension remain tight between our knowledge and our, and our obedience. Where it has been severed in a certain sense for us, I pray that you would restore that this morning, that you would reconnect those things what we believe and think and feel and do would be perfectly tied together. We long for the day, as Matt prayed earlier, where that will be the case, where there will be no more death and tragedy and trial and difficulty, but also where all of our thoughts and our affections and our actions will be perfectly in line, all aimed directly at you for your glory even as it comes back to us in delight beyond imagination, fulfillment and satisfaction, all that we were made for. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these few verses, John records a back and forth between Jesus and this group of Jews and Jewish leaders. And so Jesus will teach something, they'll respond. He'll teach something else in response to the response, and they'll respond to that four times. Jesus teaches, they respond. Jesus teaches, they respond. Jesus teaches, they respond. Jesus teaches, they respond. Well, much of the content is familiar on purpose. This isn't an accident. John didn't have a, you know, when I was in 
in high school mostly. I had to have so many, so many pages, which was weird. It should have been words. It was pages. And so my font would get to be like 24 and I'd say the same thing three times just to take up more space. That's not the case here. There is evidently something we need to get that we didn't get with one time or maybe two times. And so we lean way into this. Remember, and in the Old Testament, if you said something once, God is holy, that meant he's holy. If you say he's holy, holy, that meant something else entirely. And if you say he's holy, 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 that was a way that they would communicate importance. I think there's something to that here. This isn't, a lot of this isn't new. Jesus has said it before and it means we need it more, not less. Means you need to lean in further, not sit back further. So much of the content is familiar, even as the response of the people who heard it is mostly familiar. Jesus' first statement is especially familiar since it was just a few verses earlier that we heard this basic idea. Jesus said, I'm going away and you will seek me. And then skipping ahead just a little bit, where I'm going though, you cannot come. That's what he says in our passage. Well, just a little bit earlier in seven, he said, you will seek me. And you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Almost identical. In both cases, Jesus' main point, there's, there's some differences, but his main point was that he would re- soon return to the Father's right hand. And as long as anyone, and especially the people hearing him, the proud Jews and Jewish leaders, refused to believe in and trust in him, they could not join him in the Father's fellowship. Here, though, Jesus added something a bit more pointed. That's pretty pointed as it is, but he got more pointed still. And he said, and right in the middle of those two clauses I gave you, and you will die in your sin. As we've seen, Grace, Jesus did not come to earth to condemn mankind to death. That's not why he came. Rather, he came because mankind was already condemned to death. And Jesus' message was letting them know that, making sure that they understood that in order that he might free all of us from that. So he didn't come to issue that kind of judgment. He didn't come to bring that kind of condemnation. It was already on us. He came to reveal that in a fuller sense and save us from that in a total sense. So Jesus will expand on this in verse 24 and offer a bit of hope also. But the simple, shocking truth that Jesus began with is that we are all born into sin and sit under its wages, which is death. So Jesus, the long-promised Christ, presented himself to the offspring of Abraham, the children of the promise, to be received in faith, to be worshipped and glorified as the Christ. But rather than receive him in gladness and hope, however, most despised and rejected him. And Jesus' message to them was that he would only be with them a little while longer. He was about to go to a place that only the faithful could follow him to. Therefore, as long as his hearers remained in their unbelief and continued to seek the Christ in someone other than him, that's what he meant by you will seek me. He didn't mean him. He meant continue to seek the Christ. If they missed it in him, they would remain dead in their trespasses and sins. And so we need to begin with this first teaching of Jesus to marvel at this revelation of Jesus' glory. He knew the will of the Father. He was entirely committed to it. He knew that the will of the Father was to return to the Father's side once his mission on earth was completed. He knew that this group of hard-hearted Jews was lost in their pride and unbelief. He knew that they were only growing in their desire to kill him. But Gracie also knew 
that in spite of all of that, he would continue to offer himself to them that they might find life in his death. And so like the Jews of John 8, having heard Jesus teaching, you and I, and seen his glory, we can't not respond to it. You will respond to it. You are right now responding to it, even if it is an indifference. That is a response. It is in front of you. We can't not respond to it. Doing nothing is doing something. All right, so how did the Jews respond? Given this teaching and revelation of glory, the right response should have been and still is for you and I, belief and repentance and worship and obedience. But instead, they responded to Jesus' teaching here, much like they did to the same stuff in chapter 7. In both cases, they were confused at best and mocking at worst. In chapter 7, they wondered if Jesus was going to go leave to teach among the Greeks, to leave the nation of Israel behind and go teach among the Greeks. Here they wondered, what does that mean? Is he going to go kill himself? More than likely, this was a, a slight on Jesus. Suicide was considered one of the worst sins a person could commit, and the Jews at the time believed that there was a special place in hell for those who did that. To suggest that Jesus would do such a thing was, in their minds, it's subtle for us, we maybe wouldn't have picked up on this, but to suggest that Jesus would do such a thing was less a genuine question here and more of a subtle attack on his character. It's subtle for us, not so subtle for them. Ironically, of course, Jesus would would willingly lay his life down, wouldn't he? He would give his life, but it would not be at his own hands, but the hands of these men. Instead of marveling at Jesus' glory as they ought to have, the crowds mocked in their unbelief. We're certainly seeing this kind of response. Grace, this is a little contemporary commentary. We're certainly seeing that kind of response in increasing measure all around us today. Our culture is swiftly moving, and here's my characterization of our culture when I first came to faith in Christ. I think this is fairly accurate. Our culture is swiftly moving from mild guilt-inducing indifference. That's what I, that's what I experienced when I first came to faith in Jesus. Mild, this idea of Jesus the, was, was this mild guilt-inducing indifference. We're moving from that to explicit hostility. And yet, we need to keep two things in mind as that move takes place. First, while the shift towards greater Outward hostility out there might make our lives harder in certain ways. Get this, please, get this. Dead in sin is dead in sin. In the same, it is the same sovereign grace of God that must enliven the most outward rebellious, the most explicitly God-hating heart, and the heart of the unknowing, unbelieving, well-dressed, well-mannered homeschooler who believes they believe. That's the first thing we need to keep in mind. And second, while we must care about and for those out there, our first concern ought always be for our own hearts. We must always look first to strain out the camel of our own functional unbelief. All of us have pockets of that in our lives, functional unbelief. All of us are confronted with this glory of Jesus and have certain aspects of us, which we would say we believe, but we don't live that way. And that, that must always be our first concern. We mu- must always look to strain the camel of our functional unbelief out of our own eye before we'll ever properly be able to focus on and help and serve and love well 
the ever-growing gnats of angry unbelief in the world around us. So in other words, while it's often easy for us, and the reason, main reason I say this is because when we read this passage, I, I think, and maybe I'm projecting myself too much on you all, but when I read passages like this, I constantly think, how could they be so dumb? How could they miss the glory of the only Son of God right in front of them? And I, by God's grace, it went from, I would stop there to, you know, an hour later, I would, you know, oh yeah, that's right, that's me too. To, it's pretty tight now. Quickly, I remember, what in the world am I talking about? I've got that all over in my life. And so, so he, here's what I'm Here's what I'm wanting you to see. Well, it's often easy for us to scoff at the faithless response of the Jews in passages like this one, and easy to scoff at the growing and destructive unbelief of our culture. Our first impulse should always be to recognize that apart from the grace of God, there go I. All right, first teaching, first response. Here's the next one. As the crowd and leaders, Jesus' next teaching, responded in confusion and mockery, Jesus' next teaching cut to the heart of why. So, so why are they responding this way? Why are they missing Jesus and failing to delight in what he says and who he is? He, his next response, his next teaching cut to the heart of why it was like that. Jesus not only taught the truth, but he also taught why so many rejected the truth as it was taught to them. Look at 23. He said to them, you're from below. I'm from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In these few words, Jesus painted a brilliant picture of the vast chasm between he and his hearers. What do I mean by that? They, Jesus said, were from below. They were of the world. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. That sounds familiar. It's because these things are largely echoes of John the Baptist's words back in chapter 3. But again, at the heart is that rejecting Jesus, rejecting him, seeing him, having his glory revealed in, in word or in written word, spoken word or written word, having his glory put before us, rejecting Jesus is the universal remark of those who are fallen, of those who are allies of the flesh and the devil. Those who are in conscious or unconscious sometimes, rebellion against God and who are enmity with God. It's the universal response. Collectively, that's what Jesus meant by from below or of this world or dead in sin. Those things mean those things. Of course, this is the opposite of what Abraham's children believed about themselves. But as Jesus taught over and over and over, again, as Matt prayed earlier, sincerity and zeal are not the same as rightness. You can be as sincere and zealous, more sincere and more zealous than anyone else you know, and also living in a lie. That was Jesus' point here. In glorious contrast, Jesus was from above and not of this world. Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the only Son of God, the eternally begotten of the Father, wasn't, isn't, and never will be marred by sin or deserving death. He is eternally perfect in every way. I love this description. Every single thing in heaven and earth holds its proper place in Jesus' mind and in his heart. That's sanctification. That's what we're after. Where every single thing in heaven and earth holds its proper place in our minds and in our hearts. Jesus had that. And in great contrast to those he had come to save. 
This is my paraphrase. I spoke the truth to you, but you did not receive it. This is the essence of what Jesus is getting at. That's because we have different origins. We're from different places. We have different fathers and therefore different desires and different vantage points. You cannot see clearly because you're blinded by your sin. You cannot hear my words because you are friends with evil, dead and deaf to things, the things of God. Well, in spite of these things, Jesus offered a glimmer of hope, which is why he came. <laughs> and they're in another display of his glory. Rather than declaring them reprobate, unsavable, lost forever for certain, Jesus said, this is where you are from and this is where you are headed. But one thing can change all of that. Unless you believe that I am he. If you continue in unbelief, you will continue in death. But if you believe that I am he, that's it. Believe that I am he that changes everything. Two things to see there. Number one is that belief in Jesus, not doing better, not trying harder, not keeping a higher percentage of the law, but belief in Jesus is the means of receiving the saving grace of God. It's the heart of the gospel. But second, curiously, the specific belief that Jesus talks about here is belief, the belief it serves as a conduit of God's saving grace is belief that I am he. That's a funny statement. It's, it's a funny sounding way to say what he was saying. But So what's he getting at? In a way that will become clear by the time we get to verse 58. We're, we're going to keep making our way through chapter 8, obviously. And so most of what I'm going to say about this, I'm going to say when we get there. But in a way that will become clear in verse 58, Jesus was claiming here to be God. <laughs> Amen. Why do I say that? Where, where do I get that from? Consider the words of the Father in Isaiah 40.10. Father says this, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Jesus was claiming this for himself in this moment. At this point, owing to a bit of grammatical ambiguity, it wasn't entirely clear to the crowd yet what what Jesus meant. Have you ever been, hopefully not in a sermon that I've given, but have you ever been somewhere where somebody said something and you just sort of cocked your head? Did they just say what I think they said? You ever you ever been in one of those deals? They, they couldn't. No way. They just. I think they. Just, no way. They just said what I thought, think they just said. I, I have a lot, unfortunately. But but anyway, if you ever have, that's in essence what's going on here. And we know that based on the response here versus the response a few verses a few verses later. So again, owing to a bit of grammatical ambiguity, it wasn't entirely clear to the crowds what Jesus meant. They they were starting to get it, but it wasn't all the way there yet. That may be given the benefit of the doubt to some degree. But any and all ambiguity is gone by the time we get to the end of chapter 8. We'll take up stones to stone him for blasphemy. But we know, but we know now what the crowd was soon to find out, Grace, Jesus is God. <laughs> Again, marvel at this glory, Grace Church. Jesus put his glory on display for his first audience through his spoken word, and he is putting it on display right now for us through his written word, which is living and active. Just as his first hearers needed to respond, so do we. We are all either of the world or of grace. 
We are all either of the world or by grace of God, from below or in Jesus, from above, dead in our sins or through believing that I am he, alive in God. Those are the options. And our rescue from the former into the latter is entirely owing to the fact that the man Jesus is also divine. That's amazing glory. So what do we do with that? There's another teaching. We've got to respond to it. Even if you don't do anything different, that is your response. We need to respond. Again, with eyes to see and ears to hear, the crowd ought to have been filled with a sense of awe and wonder and conviction and belief and worship. But instead, confusion. They wondered aloud, okay, what's going on here? All right, who are you again? Remind us again, who are you, verse 25? They suspected Jesus was claiming something truly staggering, but they weren't sure yet. Who do you think you are? What are you saying to us? Again, Jesus was breaking every mold that they had. That's the point. They had, they thought, God neatly in a box and what he wanted and who he was and what the Christ would be like and what salvation would look like, and Jesus was breaking every mold. He didn't fit into any of the boxes that they had fashioned. Everything about him caused those around him to have to recalibrate in their confusion. In some cases, as we'll see at the end of our passage for this morning, they recalibrated to belief. In most, however, they recalibrated to anger at the audacity of Jesus to claim the things that he claimed. Grace, while most in this crowd asked the question with blind eyes and hard hearts, it is the right question. To truly understand Jesus, his nature, his claims, his works, and his mission is to have your sensibilities continually shaken or even destroyed and realigned. If you read your Bible... How many of you read your Bible regularly? I hope all your hands go up. If you read your Bible and don't regularly find yourself asking this question of Jesus, who are you? I thought I had tasted your glory, and I have, but this is on another level. If you do not regularly find yourself having to reimagine how great, how wide, and how deep, and how long, is the glory of Jesus. You're not reading it rightly. You're not, you're not reading it with the help of the Spirit. As non-Christians, our mind are in, minds are in complete incongruity with Jesus and his teaching. But even as Christians, the transformation of our minds to truly appreciate the glory that is Christ's is a lifelong work of the Spirit. So pursuing Jesus is to constantly discover new wonders of his glory. As we'll see, some in the crowds had that same reaction, or at least sort of maybe. Uh, Many believed in him, verse 30 says. But according to Jesus' words, many more didn't. All, however, upon hearing Jesus' teaching, wondered, who are you? How can you say these things? How can you do these things? Here's the third one. In answer to this question, Jesus' third teaching, Jesus essentially told the crowds that he hadn't wavered in his claims. I am who I always said I am. I I haven't told you anything different. From the start of his ministry, Jesus' message about himself hadn't changed. It had expanded and he provided more clarity, but it was the same message. So he said just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Expanding in that and clarifying that even more, Jesus went on to reiterate some familiar things. I have much to say about you and much to judge, 26. The much to say part seems plain enough. 
keeping with John's account of Jesus' life and ministry, but what about the much-to-judge part? Isn't that in contradiction with what we read a few verses earlier in verse 15, I judge no one? There is, of course, no contradiction in this or any of Jesus' words. They're perfect in every way. In this case, as Jesus will explain in the very next words he speaks, the, the words that he said to them, all of them, were of the Father. His point in essence is that I, it's not about me judging you. I have lots of things to say about the Father's judgment on you. But whatever truth, encouragement, correction, or judgment that came from his mouth was from God. So he said again, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Again, it's as if he were saying, everything I say and all my judgments that I make are true since they are from directly the Father. This too is a familiar refrain for Jesus in the face of this continual assaults of skepticism and confusion and persecution over and over as people would question him and how he believed he could say what he was saying. He'd say, if you have a problem with me or with my words, your real problem is with God, the God you claim to know, the God you claim to be teachers of, the, the God you claim to be living in covenant with. Your real problem is with him, not me, since I am here entirely according to his will. What glory, grace. Jesus was sent personally and directly by God. And everything he said to the world was spoken to him by the Father. Oh, that we would follow in his steps. For we too have been sent by God to speak the truth of Jesus in love to the ends of the earth. And we too have been given the words to share with the world. May we see the glories of Jesus. May we learn the words of Jesus. And may we speak them Boldly, wherever we go. So what did they do with that? That's what the crowd ought to have done. (laughs) Receive the glories and teaching of Jesus and share it all over the world as a light to the world, which they were created to be. But in a final confused response, this time narrated by John rather than spoken by the crowd, the crowd failed once again to understand what this really meant. Once again, John noted the disorientation of those who heard Jesus first speak these words. That's why he wrote, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Reading between the lines, the Jews who heard Jesus speak must have wondered, who is he talking about? What is he referring to when he he says, I speak nothing of my own and only that which I was sent for? Why is he functioning as this person's spokesman? What does that mean? Remember earlier they said, who is your father? Where is your father? What does that mean? Who is he talking about? Well, as Jesus said, this message was the same he proclaimed from the beginning. Back in chapter 5, verse 30, he said again, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's what I've been telling you from the beginning. It's another reminder that the issue most certainly was not the clarity of Jesus speaking. Why did people not understand? Why were people confused? It certainly was not about the lack of any lack of clarity in Jesus' teaching. It was about the lack of spiritual understanding of those who heard his words and were dead in their trespasses and sins. So here's the last teaching. In response to their confusion, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. In essence, Jesus told the crowd that, What was presently unclear would be clearer soon enough. 
they would hand him over to be crucified when he lift up the Son of Man, and then at least some of their confusion would lift. At the very least, when he was crucified and the tomb was empty three days later, they would know that Jesus was from God, and was as was his teaching. It might be too late for some of them, Jesus said by then, but nevertheless, a time of greater clarity was not far off. And then in one final word, Jesus said, look at 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This was the verse that stood out to me the most this week. Here, the inexhaustible glory of Jesus, at least as far as I can tell, is easiest to see. Jesus made two claims that are unspeakably awesome. He claimed that the Father was always with him, and that his entire life, everything he felt, everything he thought, everything he did, was a pleasure to the Father. Grace, in some, in, in case some part of that isn't already clear to you, those things ought to be the greatest cry of your heart. Let me say that again. In Jesus, we see. In Jesus, we see that the Father was always with him, that God would always be with you. Knowledge that God is always with you, if your hope is in Jesus, ought to be the great cry of your heart in living in every single way, in a manner that brings pleasure to God, ought to be the cry of your heart. Whatever else you are chasing, besides those two things, stop it. Whatever else you long for in greater measure than those, stop it. Whatever else you've placed your hope in, stop. Whatever else you imagine heaven to be like, other than the continual presence and pleasure of God in your life, stop it. Having the Father eternally and unwaveringly with you and living in in a manner entirely pleasing to him is the highest aim and greatest reward anyone could ever receive. Jesus lived eternally, perfectly in that from eternity past into eternity future. And here's here's the conclusion. And by believing in him, which he offered himself, by believing that he that he is and rewards those who believe in him, by believing in him, we can join him in that. That is heaven. That is the promise in the final end to the gospel. What glory. At this point, at least on some level, verse 30 says, and then many believed in him. John doesn't clarify the nature of this belief. We've learned, if you've been here, there's there's unbelieving belief and believing belief, and we're not sure which this is yet. But Jesus' final words seem to have penetrated hard hearts, at least to some extent. May that be the case for you and I this morning as well. And, and through us, may it be the case for us and through us as we declare this good news to the ends of the earth.